something connected and just this wave of sadness came over me and I just thought, you know, what am I doing? You know, five minutes ago, this little boy was all together in one piece and now, you know, here he is. Uh, and uh, I, I just couldn't do abortions after that. so happy that you've come out to California, Dr. McMillan, from Jackson, Mississippi. Very important place. Yes, it is. We've had a lovely uh, contribution to make to the pro-life movement. Very unexpected. So Jackson v. Dobbs was the case that overruled Roe v. Wade. And yes, it was yes. Jackson, Mississippi, which is your, is it your hometown, Not Dr. My McMillan? Home no, I didn't grow up there, but I've lived there since 1974. Wow. So... So we have a lot to get into. First of all, thank you. Dr. McMillan was one of the four doctors who were part of Live Action's What is Abortion? Abortion Procedure videos. So you help narrate and explain what the abortion procedure is. So we're going to get into your incredible story. Okay. Which I think will inspire many people. Well, we'll see. I think it will. I hope so. I think it will. We can start at the beginning, I guess. Let's uh, do it. All right. I grew up Catholic. I was the second of six children. I knew pretty early I wanted to be a doctor, which was interesting. <laughs> uh, I think my, my father was a great influence on that. He had always wanted to be, but because of the depression, losing his father when he was 16, having to take care of his mom, et cetera, that just didn't happen. So I kind of picked up the, the dream, I guess. I went off to uh, start my college education at the University of Tennessee after graduating high school, and I didn't have a name for it then, but I was flat dab in the middle of secular humanism, mm. which was a whole new world uh, from where I came from. What year was this, Dr. McMillan? Uh, 60, 1960, I graduated high school and started pre-med. So right in the throes of the sexual revolution oh, of the yes. 60s, oh, right yes. before 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, and yeah. you are young, Wet bright, behind the ears. <laughs> and ready to go to med school. Yeah, yeah. And um, I quickly realized that none of my teachers seemed to put much truck, as we would say in Tennessee, put much mm -hmm. truck in, in the idea of, of a creator God. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all evolution up out of the mud type ideas. Um, and I found myself, uh, as a sophomore, 19-year-old, challenged to make some decisions in my life. You know, was I going to live like my faith and my family had brought me up, or was I going to get with the now generation? Um, because I had, a, I had a boyfriend then who I eventually married. Uh, but I remember going to uh, Mass and Communion one last time at the Newman Center, uh, to say goodbye to God, you know, drama, drama queen, okay. Uh, I said, uh, you know, Lord, if you're real, uh, come back and get me someday. But right now, my friends and the culture I'm in right now seems a lot more real than you, so I'm signing out. And I did. I did not uh, step inside a church for 14 years. Wow. So um, I was able to finish my 
pre-med and then go on to med school and uh, really uh, bought the idea that, that uh, we weren't in any way a special creation of God. Uh, uh, this had all evolved, and you know we were just a, a better animal, I guess. Um, there was no soul. Did you believe in the soul? I didn't think about it. I didn't have time to think mm -hmm. about it. My goodness, I was up to here and studying. And uh, So when you went to, you're a college student, you go to church for the last time, like you said, you went to Mass for the last time, raised Catholic, and you say, I'm saying bye to you, God. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, it seems a lot more real out there, is what you said. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? What, what was life like? That you felt was not compatible. I mean, you had a you had the honesty. It sounds like to not keep going to to church if you felt it wasn't real. How was I going to live my life? Uh, it was the middle of the sexual revolution, and that was uh, the deciding factor. You know, was I going to live by the Ten Commandments or not? And I decided or not. So was it was it was part of that like you know sexual revolution is hookup culture people having sex outside of marriage? Was it partying? Was it kind of that whole it was, world? I mean, you were very studious. You ended up in med school. I don't think hookup culture was really alive back mm -hmm. then. And this was, you know, the sexual revolution mm -hmm. was just getting under underway. But uh, the birth control pill had just mm -hmm. come out and I got on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was in a monogamous mm -hmm. uh, relationship, but, but, that I knew it wasn't compatible with being Catholic and uh, uh, or even Christian, and I just made a decision. So I wind up at medical school, and you know, I'm learning all this information about how fearfully and wonderfully made we are, and uh, tr trying very hard to believe that it was evolution. And I didn't come face to face with abortion in, in medical school, in my internship, in even until my residency in OBGYN. How did you first come face to face with uh -huh. abortion? Well, and this is, what year are we in right now? For okay, residency? I graduate medical school 66. I, uh, in 68, to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And um, wonderful experience. Uh, it's a small town. They did not have enough uh, deliveries there to train 12 residents. Uh, you know, you go to the Mayo Clinic for your big medical problems not to have your baby. So what they did, they partnered with Cook County Hospital in Chicago. Six weeks of the six months that I spent there was on a ward called the Infected OB Ward. I had no idea what Infected OB was. And, and back in the day, they were not orienting us before taking on a new service. I was just told to show up at seven o'clock in the morning, meet my intern and go to work. Uh, so I show up at seven o'clock, meet my intern and look around this ward. And well, uh, these are women who uh, were ready to be discharged and sent home. So we did that and I was doing all the paperwork. Things didn't get busy until about five o'clock at night. Uh, five o'clock at night, uh, it seems like, uh, the sun went down, the elevators started coming up from the first floor emergency room and they started depositing patients on our ward. They were all strangely alike. Uh, they were bleeding. Uh, some of them were running a fever, infected OB ward. On physical exam, they would have a tender enlarged uterus and nobody would talk. It was, uh, nobody would give, give me much of a history at all. So it was just kind of perplexing, but 
did the obvious. We got IVs and everybody, antibiotics if they needed that, blood if they needed that, uh, and just basically uh, <laughs> got everybody stabilized and kept up with the elevator. I was, uh, that first night I was on call, I was sitting at the uh, nurse's station writing out orders and such, uh, and I happened to overhear the nurses talking, and it suddenly hit me what was going on. Ah, oh, these women were coming from the back alley abortion mills of Chicago. Uh, they weren't talking because the abortionists falsely told them that if they admitted to having an induced abortion, they were going to get into legal trouble. Not true, the abortionists would, and of course they were protecting themselves. Uh, and it, it all kind of, oh, this is what's going on. So this is pre-Roe v. Wade. Yes. This is in Chicago in 69, and there's this back alley abortionist, mm -hmm. and women are sick and going to the hospital for it because he's butchering them, basically. And, you know, today, there's ambulances picking up ladies at Planned Parenthood, women at Planned Parenthood, after they botched their abortions there. But they code it at the hospital. They still don't, they're still not honest about it. Correct. At the hospital today. So whether it's legal or illegal, back alley or front alley, you know, front street, it's either way in the hospital, botched abortion is not something that they're acknowledging. And if anything, when they, you know, code what's going on with a woman who's having a, you know, a failed abortion or, you know, abortion complications, as they say, pregnancy complications. Yes. That's Did you they... code pregnancy complications as well? I don't know that we were Do you were remember code... how they were coded? Back then, mm. I had nothing to do with coding. <laughs> uh, that, that, all of uh, the insurance and the layers of bureaucracy piled on as my career piled on. It wasn't. It wasn't in in the sixties, uh, early seventies, what it is today. Um, but. What woman would want to go to an emergency room and say, I had an, uh, an abortion, mm. you know, even a legal abortion? Mm. Um, they would rather say, I had a miscarriage or just a whatever. So that night, uh, and every night that I was on call, uh, we would admit 15, 25 women a night. Things would usually calm down around midnight, and I'd be able to go to the sleep room and catch a few hours of sleep. It, seven o'clock in the morning when the wonderful new fresh nursing uh, shift came on, they would wake us up and uh, my intern and I would have to take these women back one at a time to a little treatment room and do another DNC. We would have to clean out whatever infected tissue had been uh, left in by the abortionists. Looking back, I, I think most of the abortionists uh, didn't even try to empty the uterus. What they would do they would open the cervix enough to uh, put an instrument in and break the water, break the bag of water. Uh, and they would tell the woman in you know, 24, 48 hours or so, you're gonna start cramping and bleeding. Uh, at that point, go to the emergency room and tell them you're having a miscarriage. Wow. One of the things that struck me uh, during that time was, was how poorly these women were treated. They were treated like trash. You know, like, oh, here are these women who went and got an illegal abortion. How awful. And here we're having to, you know, take care of them. That was sort of what I was hearing from the nurses. And I, I, I was pretty angry by the time I got off that service. I just thought, you know, 
if women are going to be so distressed about an unplanned pregnancy that they're willing to go to some back alley quack and get uh, go through all of this grief, uh, I'm ready for institutional medicine to start accepting some social responsibilities. We should be offering them, you know, safe care. Your experience with abortion so far was you were seeing these incomplete abortions. Correct. And your heart was going out to these women. And so you're thinking, well, why is this? Why why aren't we just doing, like you're saying, just letting them have abortions? I think was what you were saying there. Did you have at that point a real position on abortion? Did you think, it's fine. Why is there even any fuss about it? Like, I, had, what was your... I had no thoughts about abortion. I had not had to deal with them in any of my training so far. Um, it was just like, oh, this is, this is what goes on. So when did you first have an opinion on abortion? 1969, when I, when I was in, in Chicago. That I, I, was, I saw it for the first time. I had to come to some sort of conclusion. And my conclusion was, uh, I don't want women to be treated so poorly. And would you be delivering in that ward with the infected uterus, as they call the infected uterus, and there are these women who are having incomplete abortions or botched abortions, would you be delivering babies? Were the miscarried babies or aborted babies? What I saw when, when I would take them back for a DNC would usually just be, they had already probably passed mm -hmm. some of the tissue. Uh, uh, no, I don't remember seeing anything that made me think this is this is a baby type thing. I was thinking this is this is a incomplete mm. miscarriage, a not, not miscarriage, an incomplete abortion. Uh, not unlike the incomplete miscarriages I would see uh, up to that point, mm. uh, and they were treated the same way. You have a you have a, a non-viable pregnancy with tissue that needs to be uh, removed so that the woman won't get infected and, and uh, die, you know, basically, yeah. So, 73 comes, and uh, by this time I'm, I'm married. I'm uh, in Kentucky. Uh, I have uh, three children, three little boys. Um, and uh, here comes here comes Roe. Mm. So when my partner and I realized abortion is legal, uh, we went out and bought a suction machine, and we started offering first trimester abortions to our patients. We were feminists, you know. We were. Do you remember the first abortion that you offered? I don't, but I remember the last one. I remember one of the last ones, yeah. Can you share about that? Yeah, okay. And the last one, how many roughly had there been at your clinic until the last, the, from the first to the last? The ones that I did, uh, I think I, I've thought about all told in my uh, practice, I've probably done around 500, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, 1974, I'm going to back up just a little bit. A year after Roe, uh, uh, my husband moved us to Jackson, Mississippi. In 75, there was not one abortion clinic in the state. 
uh, were slow. <laughs> uh, they had everything uh, they needed to start up this uh, business because they'd formed a nonprofit corporation. They called themselves Family Health Services. Uh, and the only thing, the only piece they didn't have was a physician to do them. Uh, I was a new kid on the block. Uh, they came and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this, and I thought, you know, if I feel the way I do about abortion, uh, that it's good for women, it's something that we ought to offer, uh, uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, so uh, in, I think it was September of, in the fall of 75, we opened up the clinic. And as I say, we just did first trimester abortions, section DNCs. At the end of 1975, I was taking stock of the year, and uh, I realized that things had gone better than I thought. You know, I had uh, uh, a nice car, I had a, uh, a nice house, I had all the clothes I could put on my back. Uh, my private practice was finally operating in the black. The abortion clinic was, was so busy I had to train some other physicians because I didn't want to spend all my spare time doing abortions. But I was miserable. And uh, I realized uh, my marriage was falling apart, among other things. Uh, but I just thought, you know, I have all these wonderful things going on in my life with this little aside over here uh, uh, that probably I can fix, which I couldn't. Uh, and I was just miserable. And I, I went and bought uh, a do-it-yourself do book, a help-yourself book, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. And uh, uh, reading, reading that, I finally uh, came back to God. The first chapter of his book said, uh, Affirm ten times a day, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And uh, at that point, I... It was, I was, I was desperate. It was, you know, January, February of, of 76, miserable weather. Sun hadn't been out in a month. It was raining and cold. And uh, I, was, I was at the point of, of, of uh, having suicidal thoughts. So, uh, so I finally just gave up and said, okay, I'll say that darn thing. <laughs> and uh, I was in my car in the doctor's parking lot and, uh, at Baptist Hospital when I finally gave up and uh, just said, okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And at that point, uh, I had a remarkable experience, just the, the presence of, of Jesus Christ in the back seat of the car behind my right shoulder, uh, like the hound of heaven, jumping out of the underbrush. Uh, and anyway, I didn't know what had happened. During this time, so you're reading The Power of Positive Thinking, you say this line, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and you're still operating the abortion clinic. I'm and still doing operating the abortion clinic. Uh, but amazingly, strange things started happening. I, it, I started getting more and more uncomfortable going down to the abortion clinic and doing my procedures. And I thought, why is this? It never bothered me before. Uh, and what, what was happening was um, 
I was looking at what I was doing, I guess. You know, there's a miracle recorded in the Gospel of uh, Mark where Jesus heals a blind man. Uh, you know, he takes some spittle and touches his eyes, and he says, you know, what do you see? He says, well, I see men, but they look like trees. So it took a second touch from God before the man saw clearly. And that was my case, too. Uh, at that point, I was not seeing real clearly, but I was seeing enough that it was bothering me. And that was because I was trying to do a good job. I even went to one of Warren Hearn's uh, How to Do Abortions Better uh, seminars uh, when we opened up this clinic in 75. So my uh, procedure was to uh, sit down and do the suction uh, DNC. I would take the cloth trap out of the suction bottle and take it uh, outside the room to a sink, and I would pick through the parts with some forceps till I could find all the parts. I had to find them all. Two arms, two legs, a spine, a skull, you know. If I didn't, I knew where they were. <laughs> I would have to go back in and scrape and suction some more until I got all of it. Otherwise, my patients would be showing up in 24, 48 hours with an infected, incomplete abortion. I wouldn't be doing any better than the back alley abortionists. And it was, you know, looking at that, uh, it started, uh, something started happening. One of the last abortions I did, okay, I was, I was by now uh, going to, going to a, a Protestant church with, that a friend had invited me to, and I was still running the abortion clinic, one of the abortion clinic workers asked me one day, what, what did I do out at the sink uh, when I would come out of a room? And I said, I had to make sure it was complete. And, and uh, the employee asked me, uh, could I see what you're doing and I, uh, one time? And I said, yeah, uh, when I have a uh, pregnancy that's like 12 weeks, or I'll, I'll come get you because it'll be easier for you to see. So that day arrived one day and uh, I, I remember calling her over to the to the sink and I was showing her the parts. It, it was a little boy. Uh, you could easily tell that. And off by itself was this uh, little arm uh, with this perfectly formed biceps muscle. Uh, and I had this cha-ching moment. Uh, my youngest son was I guess about three years old at the time, and he was trying so hard to keep up with his big brothers, uh, and he would go around saying, look at my muscle, look at my muscle, you know, I'm strong enough. Uh, and something connected, and just this wave of sadness came over me, and I just thought, you know, what am I doing? You know, five minutes ago, this little boy was all together in one piece, and now, you know, here he is. Uh, and uh, I, I just couldn't do abortions after that, couldn't do abortions. I was the medical clinic director, and I made out the schedule, so I just didn't ever schedule me doing any abortions. Uh, uh, several months later, uh, I, I realized I was, I was needing to join the church. I just felt like, you know, this is time and I want to start taking my children to church and all. Um, and at that point, I, 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 just, I knew 
I either had to go one way or the other again. You know, was I going to, uh, how could I walk into the holiness of the church with the abortion business uh, also? So that fall in 78, I uh, resigned from the abortion clinic and joined the church. So there were a couple steps. Oh, it was yeah. a gradual process. A gradual process, yeah. By saying you had that moment where you saw that baby as a baby. As a baby. You realized this is a baby. And then you said, I'm not going to do this anymore. But you were still an owner of the clinic. I wasn't an owner. You weren't an I owner. I was just an uh, employee. So you yes. were still working at the clinic. Yes. But yeah. not committing the abortions. Correct. What were you doing instead at the clinic? making sure they had someone there to do the abortions, uh, reviewing some charts periodically, things like that. Uh, but that wasn't for a great long time. So then I think, you know, after, after I quit, I just didn't think about abortion. I just put it out of my mind. Um, I wasn't pro-life. I just couldn't do abortions. It wasn't until two years later in 1980 that I became pro-life. Uh, as I say, Jackson didn't have an abortion clinic for two years after Roe. Uh, uh, they didn't have a, a pro-life group until uh, 1979, 80. In 1980, uh, I got invited to a uh, meeting of, of Christian physicians, but then I guess I was identified as a Christian, okay. Uh, to uh, help the newly formed uh, Right to Life of Jackson, which is now Pro-Life Mississippi, have some input in, into the medical aspect of being pro-life. And it was there, there was a group of about 20 uh, brothers in the Lord, uh, brothers in medicine, uh, that I had my medical training kind of refiltered back through the scriptures. Uh, the man who was organizing it, Dr. Paul Fowler, uh, was a seminary professor uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, was talking to me after the meeting. Um, and when he realized he had an ex-abortionist on his hands, <laughs> he said, you know, we need to get you out sharing your, your, your story. This is wonderful. And I said, uh, uh, wait a minute. I said, you know, I, all I know is the dark side. <laughs> uh, uh, and I had some questions. I said, you know, what about the hard cases? You know, what about rape and incest and medical problems in the mother? So well, he, he walked you through that and said, you know, in the cases of fetal well, okay. malformation, what did he say? Okay, well, what did he, he say? What did he say? He said, okay, uh, well, let's take rape and incest, okay. Uh, he said, first of all, abortion doesn't unrape a woman. Mm -hmm. She's going to have to deal with the trauma of the rape in her life regardless of a pregnancy, and telling a, a woman whose uh, innocent body has been violated by a rapist that the answer to her social dilemma is uh, the violent harm done to the child she's carrying just doesn't compute. Well, you were having this conversation, and this is a pro-life leader who's trying to get you to join yes. his organization. So he's trying to walk you through. He, he already thought, oh, she's pro-life. Yeah, right. I mean, she's here. She's pro-life. I know. So, well, uh, I I don't I don't want to do abortions, but uh, you know, am I ready to say no one should have an abortion? Mm -hmm. you know, what you know, what about? Now, did he know that you had been a uh, a partner at an abortion clinic? 
Yes. He knew that. I mean, no, he didn't know that until I told him. Okay. How did he respond when he learned that? His eyes kind of lit up because he realized, you know, here I am at a pro-life meeting. <laughs> like we got to get this woman telling people the truth uh, yeah, about this. Yeah. Can, can we hear, hear it from the other side? You, you understand it mm. from the other side. And he said, do, you know, do you, do you really, uh, do you really believe that, you know, God is the creator that he creates each child in the womb because if that's true, if that's true, we can't, we can't, we can't exist without God's permission, creative permission. Uh, then the child conceived in rape is no less in God's image than the child conceived in the marriage bed. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Were you persuaded? Yeah, yeah, I was persuaded. Yeah, I, I had to I had to rethink uh, a lot of, a lot of things, uh, and you know, medical problems in the mother. I had I had never encountered at that point, uh, nor have I since, a, a woman who needed to have an abortion for her health and, and life. Um, I think that's a really interesting point because you're an OBGYN who actually had an abortion clinic. I mean, you had an abortion practice. And you'd never in your practice encounter a woman who needed an abortion. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I was talking with Dr. Anthony Levitino, who you, of course, know. Yes. And he, also a former abortionist, yeah. and he worked at a high-risk pregnancy um, uh, clinic that served women specifically in for high-risk pregnancies in Upper New York. And I think he said in, out of 20,000 cases, not one of them were... Would it would have abortion would be necessary? No. Uh, if you if you work as a provider to care for both the mother and the child. That's right. Uh, it's it's like a graph. If you have health on the up and down axis and time horizontal, you have mother's health going down, down, down over nine months. You have baby's chances of survival mm -hmm. going up over nine months. Mm -hmm. What I learned to pray for was, Lord, let me recognize when those lines cross. That's mm -hmm. the time. An abortion, mm -hmm. not for an abortion, for a planned early delivery. Uh, I think it's such a big distinction. There is That's a big distinction. You're you're trying your best for both of them. The more premature the baby is, the less life, it's easier to uh, pinpoint when the mother is going to make it than it is when the baby will. Uh, but you, you do your best for both. And, and sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But uh, you're, you're making it on the right ethical and medical uh, plane, yeah. And I think the goal, the, the distinction that's so important there is that in one case, the abortionist is trying to have a dead baby at the end of the procedure. Yeah. In, an, in a planned early delivery, you're trying to delay that delivery long enough to give that baby a chance yes. to save the baby's life as well as the mother's life. Yes. And you usually have time to do something for the for a premature baby, like give them some steroids, give the mom some steroids to help mature the baby's lungs. Uh, hmm. So if you can just buy a, you know a little time, you've got a better chance for the baby. So uh, that was eliminated as a as a concern. Hmm. And then the, the last one. Um, congenital. Uh, uh, abnormalities, defects, whatever you want to call it, in the baby uh, as a reason for abortion. He looked at me and he just said, Beverly, we're all God's imperfect children. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not the children that he wanted because we're marred by sin. Uh, we 
hurt his heart uh, every day. Every day. Uh, God had a perfect right as a creator to uh, destroy us. But what did he do? He loved us. He sent his own son to uh, mm -hmm. die for us so he could adopt us back into the family. Uh, and that's how we're supposed mm -hmm. to handle our, quote, imperfect children. Mm -hmm. We're to uh, love them, mm -hmm. take them into our families, yes. So once you just had that discussion with him and you were persuaded that you were pro-life now, what happened next? Well, he got me out on the road. <laughs> we, we, uh, Gave talked. you the assignment. Well, well yeah. Uh, we went to different churches and meetings and things, and I traveled around a little bit going to state uh, pro-life conventions, etc. cetera. Um, and I've just... Uh, Shared as much as I much as I could. Uh, my first marriage uh, ended in divorce. Uh, I remarried a very pro-life man. <laughs> I didn't know how pro-life he was. I don't think he knew until we got married. But uh, uh, Roy McMillan uh, was an activist, and he organized Operation Rescue events in our state. Uh, and talked me into uh, getting arrested several times. <laughs> so just for folks listening, Operation Rescue is this movement that would practice civil disobedience and rescues to go into abortion clinics and, or, uh, you know. Or block the, block entrance, the entrance, block the entrance ways. Uh, a sit-in, a sit-in. A sit-in. And uh, up until 19... Peaceful. These are peaceful, peaceful actions. Peaceful Always very peaceful thing. and respectful. But to use their bodies, yeah, you just, ultimately to protect the bodies of preborn children. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and you would get arrested. And it was a misdemeanor until, what was it, 92? Something like that. Uh, uh, Congress passed the uh, FACE Act. Uh, so your husband's Roy, your husband's Roy, Roy McMillan. Yes. And he was, I mean, when I learned about him, I was like, this guy's incredible. <laughs> he was, you said an activist. It's like an understatement. I mean, my understanding is he did, he was very active with Operation Rescue, and it was dozens of times Yes. that he, he would participate in these peaceful rescues to save lives. Yes. How many times was he arrested for his peaceful activism? I would say between 15 and 20 times at least. Wow. I, I mean, I bailed him out <laughs> enough times, I can't remember. Um, Did you ever think when you were, you know, originally doing abortions, leave that behind, rediscover your faith? Oh, no. And now you're married to a man who's literally getting arrested for peaceful sit-ins at an abortion clinic? I had no idea at all that was where God was taking me, right? What was your love story like with Roy? Uh, well, my married, my first marriage ended in 1979, and um, I was busy raising three little boys. I had live-in babysitters because I was on call every other night uh, delivering uh, babies. Uh, and 
I was doing some pro-life speaking and uh, Roy uh, saw me on a local TV show uh, talking about uh, abortion and he was working at Southern Farm Bureau Life Insurance Company as their public relations uh, person and one of his responsibilities was a program they had for their employees. Uh, every month they would have a, a concerned citizens seminar at lunch uh, for the 600 employees. Uh, and he thought, oh, that would be good to have uh, a, a debate between this woman and the a woman who is the administrator of the local abortion, one of the local abortion clinics. Uh, we eventually had seven or eight throughout the state of Mississippi. Uh, we now have zero. Uh, but uh, he said, this would be a good uh, discussion uh, to, to have. So one, one Friday afternoon, I went out to Southern Farm, uh, gave this talk. Uh, he said, I met him there. I met 600 people there. I don't remember. <laughs> and then uh, that afternoon, I took my three boys down to a camp for a week. When I came back, uh, uh, I had this pile of mail, and I was going through it, and I had a letter there uh, from Southern Farm. I said, oh, they're thanking me. So anyway, I eventually read it, and it's a, a letter where he's saying, uh, introducing himself and he'd like to take me out uh, to dinner sometime. Uh, that, you know, that he was uh, a divorced father of, uh, who had custody of his daughter. Uh, and when he called me up uh, before I had time to even think about it and, and uh, asked me out and, and I was just totally unprepared for it. I was just dead silence and he said, you know, what's, what's the matter? And I said, well, I, I don't know if I'm free to marry. He said, Mary, I'm just taking you out to dinner. And I said, well, I have no business going out to dinner if I'm, you know, if I'm not free to, to marry. Well, obviously he talked me into going out to dinner and the rest, the rest was history. So we were married within the year. Did you find out you were free to marry? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't in the Catholic Church at, mm. back in the Catholic Church at that time, but I was Catholic enough in my upbringing that I was thinking, you know, what is the mm. the rule about this? Uh, but when uh, when I came back to the church, uh, Roy was was uh, raised uh, Protestant, uh, and we were married in the Protestant church. We, we, we went through an annulment very easily because I, I wasn't married. I was married by a justice of the peace. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I mean, it was just, mm -hmm. it was really, really pretty easy for us to. Uh, and the annulment means that it means literally the marriage. Never was a valid, never was a valid, valid marriage. Valid. Because there's a lot of qualifications for a marriage. Two people have to freely choose it. Yes. Choose it with the intention of being for life, openness to children. You know, there are certain qualifications. And do it in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, mine was a civil union, mm -hmm. period, uh, uh, the first one. So uh, so you're married to this pro-life activist. And well, he wasn't even a pro-life activist. Not, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, but he was a runner, and he would run by the abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, there would be some people out there uh, 
sidewalk counseling. And they said, uh, anyway, they talked him into doing some sidewalk counseling. Uh, he organized uh, all sorts of things, was getting in the newspaper uh, because of being arrested uh, for pamphleting the neighborhood of the abortionist. You know, he was mm. phenomenal. Uh, that was not the face that uh, the corporate uh, people wanted to have for their public relations person, so he basically got fired. Wow. Fired for doing pro-life work. Yes, yes. How did, how did he take that? Uh, I think a little better than I did right at the first. <laughs> but it turned out just beautifully. He was able to uh, do full-time pro-life work mm -hmm. that he loved. And he loved it for many reasons, one of which he, he was uh, uh, adopted. Mm -hmm. uh, his, he, he says, you know, if, if, his, if abortion had been legal when, when his mom was pregnant, uh, he might very well not be here. Uh, but uh, he was adopted. And this idea of, of uh, protecting children really resonated with him. Yeah. What would you say, Dr. McMillan, to medical students today who are wanting to, you know, pursue becoming doctors, but there's so much pressure on them to get involved, not just in abortion culture and doing abortions and all this, but also things that violate, I think, bioethics, basic bioethics, I, all these reproductive technologies, um, IVF, surrogacy, the list goes on. Yes. Be careful. <laughs> uh, try... Be careful for your soul. I, I think uh, stay in the sacraments. You know, don't uh, forsake. You're, you're going to need your Christian uh, faith to be really solid to get through this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the American College of OBGYN is pro-abortion to the nth degree. The nth degree. Um, there is a, there are Christian medical societies that I think someone going into medicine would be wise to join. Hmm. And like get, which ones would you recommend? Um, Catholic Medical Association is, is a good one. Uh, Christian Medical Dental Association. Uh, there's an American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, which I belong to. Um, stay active in your pro-life church. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. What advice would you give to someone listening who, I mean, they're hearing your story, which is incredible, and they might feel maybe they had an abortion or they're encouraged an abortion. What message do you have about forgiveness? Uh, well, abortion is not the unforgivable sin, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I know that. I regret what I did, uh, but I, I, I am at peace with God's forgiveness, and he's given me the grace to forgive myself. I would just say, believe that. Mm. You know, Jesus said himself, he didn't come for the righteous. He came for us. Mm. He came for abortionists. He came for people who had one. He came for people who 
uh, promoted it. Thank, thank God. Hmm. Yeah. Thank God. What would you say to someone listening who might be considering abortion? As a doctor, as someone who's cared for a lot of women. I would, I would get to a, a crisis pregnancy center, uh, listen to them. Where There you will hear options. You will hear options for how to continue uh, giving life to the child you're carrying. Uh, yeah, there's going to be problems, but they we have answers. We have answers. They're not. It's not going to be without pain, but neither is your, your abortion going to be without pain. Um, of all the 500 abortions or so I was responsible for, I maybe saw two patients come back to see me as a doctor. I mean, I would, what I did was so painful to them that they didn't want to mm. be reminded. And the statistics are out there to read. Um, drugs, alcohol, depression, suicide, all are increased in women who have had abortions. Mm. Yeah. Abortion is devastating for so many women and men. Uh, and, 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 and thank goodness it is. I, you know, that means that uh, something has happened that, that violated something very tender, very real in you. Uh, mm. Yes. Dr. McMillan, is there anything else that you want to share? <laughs> you what? were the first, you had the first practicing abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi. You became a pro-life advocate. You were married to an amazing pro-life advocate. You've got kids and grandkids. Yeah, uh, I think I would like to say, please get involved in pro-life pursuits in some way. Uh, it is the most pivotal issue in in the world right now. Is is human life and how we treasure it, how we protect it uh, or not. Uh, and if all that's needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing, uh, we need to do something. Uh, whether whether it's uh, supporting a, a crisis pregnancy center, whether it's uh, joining Pro-Life Mississippi, uh, or your state organization, uh, do get involved. It's, uh, yeah, choose life. Thank you, Dr. McMillan. You're welcome. Thank you for your witness and your courage and your love and sharing your story. Well, it's a gift. <laughs> everyone, it's Lila Rose. Thanks for watching. If you want to stay up to date on all of our latest video releases, remember to subscribe for daily live action content. You can also make an even bigger impact in saving the lives of children from abortion by making a tax-deductible donation to live action. Just click the donate button. As a reminder, you can follow me and live action on social media at live action and Lila Grace Rose to make sure that you don't miss out on the latest pro-life updates. Thanks for watching and we'll see you soon.